This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today, I interview an icon. He's one of the most famous people on the planet in an illustrious career stretching across three decades. He was a hero for me growing up. I just loved him. I loved and still love his music, but also his ability to entertain, his candidness and his sensitivity, which have always been so present in his music. I loved his performances, which have been described as a place where ego and insecurity meet. And I love his cheekiness, which is quintessentially British and led to all the arguments he had with Oasis back in the 90s and 2000s. And the funny thing is, as we discuss in the interview, while Robbie Williams is one of the few true household names in almost every country in the world, from the UK and Australia to Argentina and Malaysia, for some reason, his fame just didn't really transmit to the US or, I believe, Canada. It's like a Robbie black hole. To those among you who are new to Robbie, I'd just say I cannot stress what a big name he is. To give you an idea, his latest album just propelled him above Elvis Presley to set the all-time solo record in Britain for number ones in the charts. In fact, the only act that has more number one albums than Robbie Williams is The Beatles. And they're just one ahead. But that doesn't include the four number one albums Robbie had as a member of boy band. Take that at the beginning of the 90s. He's won more Brit Awards, 18, than any other act and has sold 77 million records worldwide. And got the Guinness Book of Records record for most tickets sold in one day. 1.6 million in 2006. There's a tourist trail in his hometown of Stoke in his honour and he was awarded the freedom of the city, whatever that means. Along with all of that came quite sudden and intense fame, and he has suffered with self-esteem issues and a range of addictions from alcohol to heroin. He was booked into a clinic by Elton John to recover and appears to be doing very well now. He's also interested in UFOs, conspiracy theories, and he's a lot of fun to talk to. I'm amazed the whole way through at what a relaxed and casual guy he is, given who he is. And I've gotten to send emails back and forward with him, and he's just the nicest, sweetest guy, which is something I've heard from everybody who's been involved with him. If I sound a bit sycophantic, it's because I really am a huge fan. I have quite an eclectic taste in music, and I'm happy to listen to Radiohead and Nick Drake one moment, and then Robbie Williams and his ballads and pop rock the next. I grew up on his songs, particularly Feel and Angels. If you're new to his music, do go check those out, as well as his new album, XXV or 25, which celebrates his career with new versions of his biggest hits. Please do share this with friends, help the podcast to grow, and consider supporting me on patreon.com slash andrewgold. This is just part one. Part two is out next week. Robbie sat down for two and a half hours with us, uh, and coming up are some really great guests as well for other episodes. Joining me in the studio for this one with Robbie is my longtime collaborator and friend of Robbie's and friend of mine, Sean Atwood, and co-presenter Jen Hopkins. Do go check them out on YouTube and social media. But now, you're on the edge of Robbie Williams. Hey Rob, how's it going, man? It goes hey. good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Good. Good. good to see you, Rob. We were just yeah. having a sing along. Oh, what were you singing? You were saying the flood. We were singing the flood. Great. Good. Let me introduce you to Jen, my co host. Yeah. Hi, Robbie. Hi, and, how are you? and Andrew, as also, I think he's messaged you previously. He's with a co host. Yeah, hi, Rob. I've got a message for you from, uh, I was just talking to John Ronson, but he was just saying what a big fan of yours he is and what a nice person you are. And he said um, that whenever he's with you, wonderful and amazing things happen. Is that right? Oh, I love John Ronson. Yeah. And whenever I'm with John Ronson, wonderful and amazing things happen. <laughs> the last thing to happen with John Ronson was we, I'm very posh these days. So um, I was, I took the children to the Beverly Hills Hotel for some, for some breakfast. And John was in there and he joined us. And uh, I, I ate up and I just walked off. And I, I, I'd left him to pay 
and I, 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 I didn't do it on purpose. So I, I owe John Ronson a breakfast and apologies to John. It's, it's not been forgotten. Are we, are we straight in? Are we going straight in? It is recorded if you want to just keep going because before we get into your life story, then what was it like searching for UFOs with John Ronson? Um, well, what actually happened was, and this will be part of the life story, I guess, if that's what we're doing. In 2006, I'd retired from um, being a pop star. Um, but I knew that I needed to do something. And I'd heard that if you get paid for your passion, you never work a day in your life. And that resonated with me. And I was like, well, what am I passionate about? And it's like, well, donuts and UFOs. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I couldn't be asked to make any donuts. So I, I had this, I had this, I had this thought where I'd become like Arthur C. Clarke back in the day when he had that television program. And I thought I would go and, um, go and seek out weird and wonderful things. And John Ronson and me went to a, a UFO concert, um, conference in Nevada. And um, it was my coming out as a tinfoil hat kind of person. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I got so much of a kick in in the press. There was uh, tabloid newspapers were sending little green men, you know, journalists dressed as little green men to wait outside of my house. And it was, you know, Robbie Williams has gone mad and blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, I did put on 30 pounds and grew a beard and I did look like a serial <laughs> killer. So they might have had a point. But I, I found the whole episode so embarrassing and kind of degrading that I was like, okay, maybe I should turn to making donuts instead. <laughs> so can I please ask what your first experience with UFOs was? My first proper experience goes back to the Beverly Hills Hotel once again. Wow. My first proper experience, proper, proper, other than, oh, that's interesting, could be a, um, I am with a young lady and it's over 17 years ago because uh, I'm, I've been with my wife for 17 years and it was, let's just say a N other. And we were on, um, two hotel lounges, um, at the, uh, in my room in the garden, looking up at the stars. And then all of a sudden silently over our heads, oh, I can only describe square object. I would say probably the size of one and a half uh, penalty boxes to use a uh, soccer or a football civic. <laughs> and it was matte black underneath. And it, I, I don't know if you remember Artex in from the 80s, Sean. No. Artex in, it was like what you had on your walls to try and make it look posh with all these swirls. They were like <laughs> random swirls, Artex in. And the, it was matte black with... You'll remember the Hacienda, though. Oh, yes. Okay. So weirdly, it was mud black with the with this Artex in underneath, and then Hacienda style, <laughs> a yellow and black stripes, like like it was a uh, a workman's thing. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It was like, um, it was, I, I don't know. I, I just saw it. It came in silently, and I could have hit it with a tennis ball, and then it floated off. I was totally and utterly sober, which is something that I always tell people when I tell this story. I have been not sober a lot, and I've never seen anything like that. Quarter of the size of a football pitch, silently floating black, matte black objects. Yeah. And um, I saw it. I saw it. I witnessed it. I felt it. Um, and then it floated off. And what was going through your mind? Oh, what was going through our mind was the same as the young lady who turned to me and went, what the fuck? <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a giant, what the fuck moment. And, um, you know, I've sort of always had a passionate interest in that kind of stuff. And it sharpens the senses when you have your own sightings. 
What I also thought was this. I didn't think Little Green Men. I didn't think Zeta Reticular or Orion or Interdimensional. I thought there's a bit of exotic technology that we're not supposed to have. And I felt in my spidey senses that it was our government, you know, our governments, the American government or who, whichever government. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't jump to little green men straight away. Uh, the little, it's, it's weird when you get into UFOs. I, ca- I kind of came into UFOs with all manner of possibilities being true. You know, Zeta Reticuli, Orion, interdimensional time travelers, the Anunnaki, all of these things. And then the more you read, the less you know. And then you realize you should just go with what it is you absolutely 100% know for sure. And I know for sure I saw that. And um, I know that that exists. It's something that we we talk about quite a lot on Sean's uh, show as well. And we we love talking about all of that. And we also, you know, I know you're a person who's interested in spirituality. And as a famous person, I was wondering, have you been approached by Scientology ever? I like the dark journalist. You have the dark journalist on. He was on. Yeah. Yeah. I really like him and the mystery schools and um, the uh, Austrian... Um, uh, uh, sorry, it's been a very, very long day for me. <laughs> Diner and the mystery schools and Hilda F. Klimt. Uh, there was this painter, right, in in Sweden, and she's become instantly my favorite artist because she was just doing these um, portraits of you know cafe society and landscapes in Sweden. And then in 1903, she started getting these downloads from aliens and her art just completely changed. And if you go check it, Hilda F. Plimpt. Yeah, and just understand that this woman was painting these things in 1902, 1903, and it blew my mind. And I'm sure if you go and check it out, it may or may not blow your mind too. Have I been uh, asked to join Scientology? Never. Did you consider it? No, because, you know, I've only heard and, and known about the supposed bad things attached to the church, alleged bad things attached to the church, you know. Um, that that seemed quite strong, you know. So no, it's never been something that's interested me to go and check out and 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 do. But something in their works, and it's and something in their works for a lot of people. And I, I always think that you know the best advert for Scientology is Kirsty Alley, because mm. if you watch her do any interviews. She doesn't sound insane because everybody else that's attached to it, God bless them, you know, I I love them and I'm a huge fan of all of those people, but it's like there's always something slightly off. But Mm. if they just sent Kirstie Alley in at (laughs) the the tip of their spear, I think they'd get a lot more people like me. So Rob, what was it like growing up as a kid in the North? Was Was Stoke a bit like Witness? I'm guessing that Stoke was exactly like Witness, and um, I love where I'm from. Uh, I love my people. I love my tribe. I love the sense of humor. Um, I love the the naughtiness, the cheekiness, um, the darkness of the humor too. Um, and you know, where I lived, I lived in a road of privately owned houses that ran in between two council estates. So what had happened with my mom, because my lineage is this, you know, uh, down the pits, cannon fodder, probably worked in the bogs and the marshes in the dark ages. You know, we are from absolute poverty, absolute poverty. And my mom got alone together and opened a ladies' dress shop in a, you know, not an upmarket area, let's say. And she made a success of it. And um, she was then able to open a coffee shop 
in a more salubrious area of Stoke-on-Trent. And then she bought upstairs and opened this uh, ladies' dress shop, sold that, bought a flower shop, started selling flowers, and then opened a ladies' dress shop above that. And what she managed to do by herself as a um, single parent raising two kids was nothing short of miraculous. It's actually a bigger deal than anything that I've achieved. The hard slog, uh, the ambition and the drive. And for everything that she did, she managed to take us from a council estate to a place where, I don't know, a teacher would live or a, you know, or a dentist would live. How she did that is beyond me. And, um, yeah, it is absolutely incredible. I'm in between two council estates on this one road. So I, I kind of like my peers instantly is like, I'm of them, but I'm not one of them. You know, there is that sort of distinction. Like, oh, he's got his own house, auntie. You know, it'd be like, there'd be the camp slices, the council houses, and, well, he's from his own house, isn't he? They, they own that one. Well, you do speak very highly of your mum. I mean, what was the relationship like with your dad? The relationship with my dad was I just adored him. He was my hero because he was a policeman, and then he went to this pub one night in Golden Hill in Stoke-on-Trent, and there was a talent competition. If you entered the talent competition and won, you won a fiver. And he, he was friends with some comedians who just nicked their jokes and told them and won the competition. And then the next week, he did another competition in Hanley in Stoke-on-Trent, and he won that too, and he made a tenner. And he, was, he made more money winning these competitions than he did yeah. being a policeman or wherever he was working at the time. He um, handed his notice in and went off to become a full-time entertainer. And in 1974, the year that I was born, he was on New Faces and won his round uh, and got to the final and didn't win it. Now, my dad is incredibly charismatic, incredibly talented, and everybody absolutely loves him, including me. Uh, so I just grew up backstage. I grew up around cabaret. I grew up around show folk. And... You know, if my dad hadn't have left the police force, I'd have probably been a policeman. Could you tell us the, the story of when you tried to buy your dad a house? But also I wanted to just ask, one of my favourite songs of yours is Nutsford City Limits. Is Nutsford a real place? Is Nutsford a real place? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is that, was that where you're is that, is, I just know you're from Stoke. <laughs> don't know about Nutsford, Andrew. I don't know about Nutsford. That's why I'm asking the question. <laughs> okay, so Nutsford's, Nutsford's really upmarket. Actually, you know what? I, I sort of stretched an elastic band from 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 Stoke on Trent to Mars with my career in general. But I also, with that song, stretched an elastic band from Nutsford to Mars because it was just a joke. Uh, Tina Turner had done a song called Nutbush City Limits. <laughs> right. It was like the worst pun ever that I strung <laughs> into a whole song. But listen, I'm glad the song reached its destination. I loved it. Yeah, and, and what was that? I wanted to know that story about when you tried to get your dad a house. Oh, yeah. So my dad lived above a hairdresser's in uh, Burgess Head in Stoke-on-Trent, and um, it was 50 quid a week, his house, his little flat. And it had those very, very steep stairs that, like, working-class houses have. So, like, you know... Uh, two up, one down, whatever it is, stairs like this. And he's getting on a bit and uh, went into his flat one day. And I went, Dad, why don't you just go out in Stoke, buy any house you want to? And he turned to me and he went, Why? <laughs> and I went, Well, you know, he could, he could have a garden. Eddie, I'm all right here. We're perfectly fine. And, you know, so that's, that's the beauty of my father is that I was offering him to go and buy any house that he wanted. And he was just happy in himself and happy with his lot. I, I think that I'm a combination of my mum and my dad. I am, I've got my mum's ambition and drive, 
and I've got my dad's ability to entertain. And uh, I think that if my dad had had my mum's ambition, then he would have done exactly what I've done and achieved what I've done. But he just didn't. He's, you know, he's, he's way happier than I've ever been. All of his life, he's just been, he's been in his own movie. It's like in his movie, he's, he's Dean Martin living a charmed life, you know putting 50p on the horses to last him all day for entertainment. Did you know that you were always going to go into entertainment at that stage? Well, I've got a 10-year-old daughter right now, Teddy, and I'm just watching what's happening to her. And all she wants to do is show off, you know, and um, I could probably put a positive spin on what it is that I do and what it is that she wants to do. I just always think that I'm doing you know, interesting, fannying about, but she's just fannying about just like a dad. And she always has, you know, from the moment that she could get somebody's attention, she wanted to be, she wanted to be worthy of that attention and do something interesting for them. And, um, I, I guess that's just how I was the moment I could talk, I was singing the moment I could walk, I was dancing. You know, um, it was what I was naturally inclined to do. And I was going to make a name of myself by hook or by crook. But whatever level that was going to be was in the lap of the gods. I couldn't have expected or even dreamt that I'd become me that's done this, you know. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, I was always... I was always going to be in this sphere. I, I think that if it hadn't have happened for me, then I'd be doing what you guys are doing on YouTube because this is totally up my street. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Were you popular in school, Rob? Or were you like me getting beat up by the rugby players? No, I wasn't. I wasn't unpopular. I hit on a good year in a good school. 
And, you know, there wasn't, um, I'm sure you could ask other people, I, I, I'm going to say blanket statement, there was no bullying, but uh, uh, other than, you know, the, the mean shit that you say when you're that age to each other, I wasn't unpopular. Uh, I, I wasn't academic at all. I've got really, I've got ADHD, I've got dyslexia, I've got loads and loads of things, but those were the things that hampered me at school and dyspraxia. And um, I left school with absolutely no qualifications at all. So if you ask any of my mates from school what they thought of me, they thought I was thick. <laughs> because in the, in the 80s in Stoke-on-Trent, you didn't have dyslexia and you didn't have ADHD. So I just spent five years at school with a painted face um, pretending that I was listening. And I think I did a really good job <laughs> at fooling everybody because I was quite good at acting. And also I did a good, um, a good version of butter wouldn't melt. So I got away with an awful lot of stuff too. I never got caught. Do, do you still have mates from back, back in those days? And, and does that become hard with fame? Yeah, instantly it does because I auditioned for Take That when I was 15. I got in when I was 16. We became famous when I was just 17. And, mm. um, what happens is you get especially with something like take that you get harnessed to a rocket ship that's going to Mars and um, you're on the outside just holding on like this. And then you arrive in Mars and you go, how do I get back? Oh, you can't. Not only that, you know, that tribe you were part of, you are now no longer part of that tribe. You exist as an other outside of that, especially when you are 17 because young bucks are gonna lord of the flies it and it was like lord of the flies you know i wasn't instantly i wasn't safe there was a contract out on me to kill me when i used to be on my bike people used to try and run me over i'd get bricks thrown at me pine pots thrown at me and i was a pub goer and pubs became instantly unsafe for me why because of jealousy because of jealousy you know young bucks lord of the flies I'll tell you one story I don't think I've ever told. There was lots of times that I'd had to run for my life, like loads of times. And there was this one time I was in a, a garage in Newcastle Underlime, and I'd already known that I shouldn't be in these sort of places. I shouldn't be outside of my road and my pubs that I go to. But I'd had three pints and I was watching the football in a pub and I went to a garage and um, stood in this garage. And there's about five people in front of me and I see this car pull up. It's an old Talbot, an old Talbot Sunbeam or something like that. And uh, there's five lads in it. And I just knew I was fucked straight away. Five lads. And uh, two of them got out. And I'm looking in the mirror behind the, uh, the cashier. And I see one go to the other. It's Robbie. Come on. So they go and get the other three lads out of the car. And I look over to the exit and I see the exit green sign exit, one of those push bar things, but it's got a, um, a chain on it and a padlock. And I'm thinking if I, if I run and get to that door, you're just going to kick my head in. So I'd had three pints. And when you've had three pints, you do think you're 10 men. And I got to the counter and I said, I'll have a pack of silk cut. Uh, a pack of prawn cocktail crisps, a lighter and some lighter fluid. And I turned around and I knocked the cap off the lighter fluid and lit the flame on the lighter and just did that through all five of them and then got outside and ran off. It's, it's like the video from No Regrets. Yeah. yeah. But, 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 those, but those sort of things happened. Those sort of things happened an awful lot. You know, um, on a regular basis, what then would happen too is outside my mum's house, there'd be anything from 20 to 50 girls. One day the police had to cordon off the road because there were so many girls outside the house and they would, they would jump over and, and, and rip grass up and, um, steal wood off the fence and jump over the back and like nick the washing line, nick, nick, nick the washing off the washing line. And then every Thursday, 
a coach full of 50 would arrive from Germany and they do like take that houses travel and they'd like go to mine and then 50 would jump out and then take photos and rip up daffodils and shit and then get back on a tour bus and then go to Mark's house and do it there and Howard's house and do it there. <laughs> so, um, you know, there, there was, there was the contract army to kill me. There was the no safety, uh, anywhere that I went. Um, I felt vulnerable to attack at any, any moment I was outside of the house. Then when I was inside of the house, I was the man of the house and I had to protect my mom and my sister. Um, yeah, so I I acquired a few things that I slept with that probably would have got me five years if they'd have found out that I had acquired those things that I was sleeping with. Uh, and then, so mum closed the curtains because, you know, there would just be girls doing that in the front <laughs> window. My mum's sort of working all the hours that God sends to provide a, not even a lower class, lo lower middle class. It wasn't, you know... I think the aspirations were to be lower middle class, but we didn't quite achieve that, you know? Um, so that on top of this stuff that was happening to me and what was happening in our neighborhood, uh, the cars would get broken into every week. And, uh, you know, she became, she became quite depressed with it. And then my life at work was spent with uh, what I thought was going to happen with Take That was we were going to be this gang and it was going to be like school because school to me, I just, I, I, I've never laughed so much as I did that when I was at school, you know, that was, that was the best thing for me was the socializing and the belly aches of laughter. And I thought that that was what was going to be being in Take That. And then we were going to be in Take That. It's going to be the best gang. And we're going to be famous. That's amazing, right? So what actually happened was a joint take that. Gary Barlow is already a musical genius, right? He's already making more money than his teachers at the age of 13 because he's working clubs every night. Hmm. He, wrote, he wrote a million love songs when he was, I think he was 13 when he wrote a million love songs. Christ. 13 or 14. So Nigel Martin-Smith, our manager, took him and then put us four Muppets around it. So Gaz instantly in his head is going, what are these four Muppets for? You know, so if, if I'm guessing what happened, he's already resentful that he has to take us along for the ride. And you've got Jason Orange that's one of five brothers that was always fighting for his position in his own family. And then he's put in another family where he's fighting position and jostling. And then you've got Howard that's really lovely and really funny, but doesn't say an awful lot. And then you've got Mark Owen that's like a, a beautiful, wonderful soul that we I palled up with. But we weren't a gang. You know, mm. we weren't. We are, we are now, funnily enough. But um, those early years were, um, you know, I, 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 I have my problems with how we were managed at the time that I can't go into because, you know, he's very litigious. Uh, but, hmm. um, so what happened was I didn't feel safe and comfortable at work and I wasn't actually physically safe at home. And, um, that was a toxic powder keg for somebody in their formative years that it's like sending a 10 year old to the gym to bench press and you know uh, work with dumbbells and uh, kettlebells you wouldn't send a 10 year old to do that as a 16 17 year old you're on this rocket ship to mars you become incredibly famous it's toxic i was listening to sporty spice today she just did a long form podcast and she said she went from just being a, a young person out of witness within two years being internationally famous. And you've described, you know, this meteoric feeling. She said to survive it, she said it was the best and worst time of her life. And to survive it, she had to completely shut her emotions down. Did you have to shut your emotions down? I shut my emotions down, Sean, 
by probably taking your ecstasy. Shelley's. <laughs> <laughs> Shelly's Did you go at Shelly's Laser Dome? I was always at Shelly's, man. Shelly's, the Eclipse in Coventry. Yeah. We were probably in Shelly's. Were you there when Evolution played there? The night Evolution played, Take Me, Take Me, Take Me. Ah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then, um, alternates. Alternate played in the car park one night. I saw the prodigy there. Wow. Yeah. I began self-medicating at a uh, very, very early age. My daughter's six years away from being 16. And as a 16-year-old, I'm taking, I'm doing trips in chalets. You know, it's like, what the... And also, without social media, I was in this Lily White pop group. But I was getting away with so much. Did you ever go to Money Pennies? Didn't go Money Pennies, no. I was in Money Pennies doing a lot of things. I was in Cream doing a lot of things. I was in the Hacienda doing a lot of things. Yeah, I, I managed to get away with singing a million love songs by day and then, you know, taking a million pills by night. So was that a refuge I mean, from the danger of the pubs? Well, see, we'd go, we'd go mob handed, like, like with, with Shally's that was before I was famous, but everywhere else that I went, you know, I, um, I, I hooked up with a crew from Warrington and the, you know, they were all sort of like that. Uh, and we'd be, we'd be 20, tw we'd be, we'd be mob handed. I was safe with them cause there was enough of us and the music was great. And I didn't have to put my steel toe cap boots on for fear of getting my head kicked in. And that's how I used to grade where I was going to in Stoke-on-Trent. It'd be like, I'm going Valentino's on student night tonight. I better put my steel toe cap boots on. <laughs> but, oh and, and now I can just go in my, you know, Adidas gazelles or whatever uh, and enjoy myself. But this did happen. This one thing did happen. So um, we got our first gig there. And we didn't have a dressing room. It was just an alcove with some curtains. Then um, we only did gay clubs, I'd say, for the next 14 months. How far was it along until you split? We'll tell you that. Yeah. We were very restricted and there was lots of different rules. And you can't do this. And you can't be that. And you, you uh, can't have a girlfriend. And blah, 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 blah. My place in the band was always being threatened, you know, that. With with not being in the band, we can always find a boy with brown hair from Stoke-on-Trent and call him Robbie and you can be replaced and all of that business. Once we'd cemented ourselves with two albums and multi-platinums and playing arenas night after night, I was like, no one can fire me. <laughs> I'm going out. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I, I did this big, I broke the rules by going to Glastonbury, which was kind of, it was seismic for me and kind of seismic for everybody else that had this boy bander that hadn't got his indie stripes wandering around backstage. I wasn't allowed to go. Imagine not being allowed to go. <laughs> and I, I took off with a, a boot full of champagne and a pocket full of cocaine. You so would start my new life. After that, I think it became apparent that I couldn't be cajoled or restricted or uh, play the game. And it wasn't long after that that, you know, I said I wanted to leave after this particular tour. The boys took that as an opportunity to say, we'd like you to leave now. Um, what do you think? And I, I upped and left. So who was playing at Glastonbury? Oh, Oasis brilliant. and Paul. Um, and people were on. Did you look on. up to those guys at that time? Did you want to be more like? The sort of a smaller well, solo artist that you you came to be or indie yeah i don't i don't think that anybody really when they're 16 17 18 or 19 musically aspires to the music that boy bands are making you know there is a pretense that can be formed when you are that age that sort of goes i'm not into that i'm into this 
but I was actually being paid to be into that. <laughs> and uh, everybody that I loved and liked and respected and wanted to be like uh, played guitar music. And I was no different to any, uh, I suppose, any boy that was buying the Enemy magazine or Melody Maker magazine or The Face or Select or whatever it was. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be like that. It felt like more fun and it felt real, you know. Um, I've double, tripled back on that as I've got older and, you know, my pretenses have fallen away and, you know, I can... I can love a new kids on the block song the same way as I can dig a Radiohead song and, you know, so and so forth. You know, I, I don't, I don't have those pretenses anymore, but yeah, I saw Oasis in a video. Uh, first time I really saw them was a, a track called, uh, whatever free to do whatever I, yeah, it was dangerous, you know, and it was menacing. And it was cool and it was laddie and, um, a big gig of mine when I was growing up, there was three gigs that I had on VH, uh, VHS. Uh, one of them was, um, public enemy, uh, at Brixton, I think, or Shepherd's Bush empire. I'm not sure what Prince's love, sexy tour and the happy Mondays at the GMAX. And there was with the, with the happy Mondays, there was this sort of naughtiness that I so desperately wanted to be part of. It felt like my tribe and they felt like my people. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that's what I wanted to be. But there I was on top of the pop singing a million love songs later and here I am. Um, so yeah, you, you bet your life that. When Common People came out or Boys and Girls by Blur or whatever by Oasis, uh, that's what I wanted to do. That's who I wanted to be. So I tell the school kids that drugs start out fun at first, but it leads to dark and dangerous places. For example, you know, Russell Brown, I've read his books and he went some really dangerous places, got arrested a few times. How about yourself, Rob? Did it take you to some dark and dangerous places? I got arrested in my mind. You know, my, my mind went to hell and my psychosis did, and it happened quite quickly. Unfortunately, the golden era of using for me dried up very, very quickly. You know, um, I suppose I had 18 months worth of fantastic times paying for it on the Tuesday after a Saturday, you know, th those Tuesdays that you used to get where you were, I suppose you'd used up all of your serotonin and your, your mind's crying out for help and all you can do is lay vulnerable on the sofa. But I was yet to find my place properly in Hades and that quickly came. That quickly came through finding out that you can keep the party going after the ecstasy by doing cocaine. Cocaine's a hell of a drug and it took me to hell very, very quickly. Unfortunately, I didn't get to um, be a uh, Keith Richards kind of character. My drug abuse, my alcohol abuse uh, became very sad very, very quickly. And uh, I knew that I was, there was something wrong with me that I'd labeled in my head, oh, I think I'm an alcoholic. By the time I was 19, when you talk about it, it, it's still sort of in my mind, the nostalgia of what it was to be around that sort of rave culture and what we all thought we were achieving and where we all thought we were going and these mind cosmonauts that were going to change the planet by dancing, you know, <laughs> we, we all thought we were onto something. I didn't. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I just think by by sweating profusely in the club and dancing like that, we thought we were going to change the world. But our world did change. You know, my world changed. I am glad I experienced that. Uh, I still, to this day, 
pay for those moments in one way or another. What was your stopping point? Um, well, I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic and addicts like to addict. There is a bit of me that's quite smart and I will try and find any loophole that I can find. And I, I mean like, okay, so tried heroin, that didn't work. Cocaine's bad. Uh, what about pills? I'll just take pills. I'll take like a doctor's pills and then you get addicted to them. I can't sleep. I'll take sleeping pills. Um, and then I end up sort of with 15 sleeping pills in my pocket, nibbling them on a night out. That's kind of what happens to me. And then you go, okay, I've tried all of these things. What about weed? Weed, I could still have my career and I, I, I wouldn't lose everything. I still turn up to everything. But then weed just gave me complete psychosis. And then you sort of like, you give NyQuil a go. <laughs> you know, it's just like loophole after loophole after loophole after loophole. Looking to be able to switch radio, rub off, numb it, and, and just have a holiday from your own mind without going to prison, without going to hell, without losing your family and losing your career. I've knocked out all of those loopholes. I haven't had a drink for 22 years. Um, I had, I had, thank you. I had a brief period where I was doing cocaine without drinking, which was absolutely freaking horrible. That lasted for a few months. I, I'm I'm pleased to say that um, yeah, I'm I'm a sober guy. I'm a sober guy. Um, something's always lurking around the corner though, and I, I still can't be trusted with pills. Yeah. The wife has to has to put them behind lock and key because uh, what happens with me is I'll find that you know there'll be some sort of pills that are somewhere for a uh, medical procedure or whatever. And they'll just be there and they could be there for 18 months, every single day, Vicodin, whatever, whatever, whatever. Every day, see them, go to bed. Dead up. One day, for no reason, not being sad or not being happy or not feeling vulnerable, just whatever is in the air that day, all of those pills go. If you can, if you can channel this energy correctly, you can be an X-Man, you know, so... I'm currently addicted to drawing and I'm addicted to making these funny cartoons. So I think they're funny. Um, and I've got like 600 of them, 700 of them. And then I turned my hand to doing art and I had my first exhibition at Sotheby's and, um, I've written this TV show. There's a dark comedy come up with this idea for a talent show that's sort of never been seen before in a different way got these three drinks coming out. I've got a clothes company coming out. So this all comes from the addictive gene. The reason why, you know, I've had 14 of my own out, 15 of my own albums, 15 released albums, three online, five with take that. There's a hundred songs on my computer that nobody's ever heard. That's sort of like the vault. This is all, this is all the addictive nature. If I can channel it that way, I can do great things with it. And, um, it's just that, you know, I, I find that sitting with a Posca paint pen and drawing stuff turns this off. So, you know, that's not a bad loophole to have. And my wife allows me a lot of leeway. She allows me to spend eight hours just doing that, you know, because she knows that I'm an addict. And if I'm doing that, I'm not doing the other. Like, for example, I start walking and I've got an IFA, I've got an iWatch and um, I do 25,000 steps a day. 25,000 steps a day because I get, I get addicted to walking. I played, I, not at the moment, I played golf. I'd wake up, I'd go to the driving range. I did 200 balls. Then I play uh, 36 holes every day. Uh, and, and sugar is a, sugar's a bitch because yeah. sugar's, sugar's more difficult than booze and sugar's more difficult than cocaine. And, um, it's got me, it's got me in the grips of its, uh, yeah, it's, it's power. I suppose what I'm trying to say is at the minute, I'm a very sober man that um 
thinks and behaves addictively, but the way that I behave these days addictively isn't going to get me divorced, isn't going to make me lose my job. And in fact, I'm adding more to my life because of my predilection to wanting too much all of the time. Somebody with an addictive personality, can you try and help us understand what it might be to, to be out, let's say, at Nebworth in front of hundreds of thousands of people? I think it set a record at the time to, to feel that rush. And is that addictive as well? I explain Nebworth. So I've always, been, I've always had charlatan syndrome. And to this day, I still have it, but it's um, not as overwhelming as it used to be. Like the, 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 and I have intrusive thoughts and my intrusive thoughts are, have a jujitsu style grip over me feeding myself anything positive about myself. It's very difficult to understand, but in the early days of my solo career, I didn't believe that I deserved any of it. And no matter how big from the first university that I did my gig at, first gig at, to the arena, to then the stadium, to then Nebworth. I didn't feel as though I deserved any of it. And the bigger it got, the bigger this charlatan, charlatan syndrome got too. And weirdly, when I perform, when I've got my most bravado and I'm strutting and I'm, you know, uh, peacocking, is when I'm the most nervous and the most scared. Nebworth was a time for me where the intense responsibility of facilitating a good time for these good people that had spent good money to come to see me was overwhelming. Um, if you don't think you deserve it, and there is 135,000 people turning up, the person that is backstage is very, very different to the person that is on stage. It just felt like the world was collapsing in on me and I was trying to lift this amorphous blob of self-hatred to make some match it with this adoration that I was receiving at the front. You know, it was completely and utterly unhealthy and unsustainable. You know, that's um, intrusive thoughts, intrusive thoughts that are very powerful and very negative. Bit of an introvert then, as opposed to an extrovert. Yeah, I'm a absolutely an introvert, you know, uh, I, and I, I want to isolate and it takes me an awful lot. I, I'm, I'm, I'm better than I used to be. Uh, when I first started going out with my wife, all of her friends thought I didn't exist. Cause like she'd be going and having meals with people in the evening and it'd just be her. Cause like, and they, and, and then I'd sort of get a free pass. It's like, well, Robbie's that guy that doesn't come out. And what happened was when the kids arrived, they kind of smoked me out of the house. I had to go and join in with the world and slowly, um, I've got better at it. My, by nature, my very, my very being would be, I'd have my head on the pillow and my eyes would open in the morning and then I'd just stay there all day because that's what I want to do. That's where I feel the most comfortable. That's where I feel the most safe, you know. Um, but my dad's the same. You know, that story I told you about is flat and not, why? You know, he's kind of, I'm kind of the same. It's like, do you want to go out? Why? I've been out. I want to do it again. You know, I, I've, I've, I, yeah, I've been out. <laughs> I've been out. I've been out a lot. I've seen it. It's got nothing to offer me. And then when you sort of get sober, I realize that, oh, I'm a massive introvert that was actually using cocaine as a tool to be able to socialize. All of that is taken away. And then I didn't know how to speak to people. I didn't know how to conversate. Yeah, I, I used to have a friend that was sort of like my, my, my talking head that I'd go everywhere with and he'd do the talking for me and I'd be just feeling uncomfortable in my skin behind him. Um, but it is definitely so socializing for me was at the beginning, like going to the gym 
And when you go to the gym first time and you lift those big weights and you get those, that, that pain down here, a lactic acid buildup. And uh, socializing felt like lactic, lactic acid buildup. And I think, I'm not going to do that again. But then you have to do it. You have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And unfortunately, it takes way longer to become more natural than I would um, like it to be. Uh, still to this day, you know, socializing, I find overwhelming and takes my energy instead of gives it to me but i do do it and i am better at it the fact that i'm doing this podcast with you and i can say all of these words out of my mouth could mean that something has changed for me <laughs> so rob i tried heroin once it was in america a, a girlfriend had just dumped me i was broken hearted she invited me over she had, she had some heroin i thought if i did it with her we were going to get back together which never happened but anyhow, she shot me up. I was floored right away. And for two days, I was just hallucinating, puking, scratching my balls. And it put me off ever wanting to do that for the rest of my life. You said earlier that you tried it and it didn't work for you. Was it, did you experience something similar? I was in King's Cross and I was at somebody's flat, the great and good at the time. And the cocaine ran out, but the heroin hadn't. And it was as simple as that. You know, it was as simple as, yeah, go on then, you know, because heroin's bad, right? Uh, and what happened for me was I just was throwing up. I wasn't hallucinating. I wasn't scratching anything, but I was just <laughs> throwing up and it felt awful. It felt terrible. And I'd heard that doing heroin was like God giving you a cuddle. And like the people that I was with were like, what do you think? And I was like, it's like God giving me a cuddle, but it wasn't at all. It felt disgusting and poisonous and vile. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't run back to do it again. I wonder if we should get onto the music. Cause you've just released this brilliant re-record of all your greatest hits. I was just at this wedding the other day where the mu the musicians went from table to table playing, you know, people had to request hits and they requested, you know, all the big, you know, ironic uh, Alanis Morissette and things like that. And everyone was having a good time. And then someone requested angels and the place just went berserk. Like all the, the grandparents, the dads, the kids, everyone's getting up and singing along. It was, it was mad. Um, and, you know, how does angels feel to you today? Looking back that song, how did that change things? And, and do you, do you ever feel like it's your creep, like Radiohead? Cause I know they get tired of playing creep. I think. I don't think they get tired of playing creep. They just don't play it. I think they hate yeah. it. And it's not the same with me and Angels. I'm very, very grateful for it. Like I said, I've got a hundred unreleased songs that I've written that are on my computer. I've written 15 albums that have been released. Um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs I've written. I've had the chance to replicate the same thing that Angels has done every time I sit down and think up some words and think up a melody. And I never have. You know, that song exists somewhere outside of me in a different realm. And that song gave me absolutely everything that I have today. I'm never sick of singing it. I don't understand what it does to people. I just know that it does. And I don't have to understand it. You know, it's, and it's the same in loads and loads of countries too. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it exists somewhere outside of me. Never bored of singing it. And also it signifies that it's the end of my show too, because Star would let me entertain you, finish with angels. So every time I'm, I'm singing angels, I'm quite relieved that I facilitated what I need to facilitate and I'm going home next. Thank you so, so much to Robbie Williams for coming on the podcast. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to have him. And he's back next week for part two. So don't miss it. We'll be talking about his fight with Liam Gallagher from Oasis, his hatred of the paparazzi, and what happened when he bumped into namesake, almost namesake, 
Robin Williams. If you enjoyed that, please do review this podcast on Apple and support it on patreon.com slash Gold. Follow Sean Atwood and Jen Hopkins on YouTube and social media and leave a review on Apple. Let me know also, were you a fan of Robbie? Did you just get into his music? What do you think of his songs, Angels or Feel and um, Strong? I like that one. No Regrets, Millennium, Let Me Entertain You. So many hits. You've got a lot of work to do if you are new to him. See you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.